Recovery Elevator, episode 91. So I really relied on it as a crutch to, to just socialize, to just be out in the world and feel like I was a part of instead of so separate. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 26 months and six days. On today's podcast, we've got Sasha. She's 31 years old, been sober since September 2nd, 2011, and she lives in D.C. And just a heads up, a lot of the resources and what we talk about are in the show notes of the recoveryelevator.com website. And yes, it's that time of year. If you'd like to support the Recovery Elevator podcast, all I got to do is shop on Amazon, buy those gifts for friends, family, relatives, eh, maybe yourself at the same time, but go through the link recoveryelevator.com forward slash Amazon. So this podcast episode comes out November 13th. For me, that's about the time when the pressure of the holiday season builds up. So here are 12 ways that are going to help you stay sober through the holidays. And last year, episode 43, I did a similar podcast with tips and tricks of how to stay sober during the holidays. A year has gone by. I have compiled a new list. This one is a lot shorter, but a little more comprehensive. In this list, there are more direct action items instead of blanket statements. But before we get to the list, I want you to keep something in mind, more of a mind frame. Don't beat yourself up. This is not so much a continuous sobriety thing, or if one day goes out the window, all the wheels have to come off. No, say it's Thanksgiving time. You drink on Thanksgiving. It's your entire plan intention not to drink. That's fine. It's one day. So get back on the wagon the day after. I've done that to myself in the past. Hey, I'm not going to drink at Lake Powell this year. I have one drink and then I have about 55 beers without anybody knowing it. So don't beat yourself up. Be kind to yourself. And what's the point of the holiday spirit? It's about taking. Wait, no, I'm pretty sure. Nope, definitely got that wrong. It's about giving. Being kind. Be kind to yourself. If you do relapse, if you do take that drink, don't beat yourself up because life does a pretty good job of doing that anyways. Tell yourself, hey, Betsy, don't worry. It was eggnog. We didn't practice saying no to eggnog. Damn eggnog. Every time it's delicious when bourbon is mixed in. It's okay, Betsy. Tomorrow's a new day. We're starting over. Hell, if progress for you is staying sober two out of the 31 days in December, nice job. Don't beat yourself up and don't look at sobriety as black and white. Like you can either get 100% or 0%. If you get seven days with no alcohol in December, shit. Pat yourself on the back, buy yourself a scone, but don't beat yourself up. Now I do encourage you to try to make the entire holidays all the way through. Hold yourself accountable, let others know of your goal. Okay, let's get right into this. The very first way you can stay sober through the holidays is clash with silence, aka meditation. I used to hate the word meditation. Actually, I still dislike the word meditation. I am terrible at meditation. I suck at it. I am not good at it. Doing things that I'm not good at it, I don't like doing it. I feel uncomfortable doing it. So meditation for me, it comes through the source of creativity. If you ask me to sit and breathe in for five seconds, hold my breath for five seconds, exhale for five seconds, I'm going to make it to two minutes tops. I know this because I've tried it hundreds of times and making it three minutes for me is incredible. However, for me, if there's a creative outlet, if that's practicing guitar or piano or throwing paint on a piece of paper, I can find a way to let my mind go other places. 
I did community service when I got busted for a fake ID in high school, fitting for this podcast. And stuffing envelopes for me was very meditative. For some reason, while I was stuffing envelopes, my mind was allowed to relax. So if you can't meditate in the traditional sense, hands on your kneecap, sitting down, looking into the heavens, don't worry about it. Find a different way, something relaxing. This could be gardening, shoveling snow. It doesn't matter. A good app out there where you can do 10 free sessions is called Headspace. And a guy named Andy, he has a great reference that I still think of today. Imagine yourself sitting on a side of the road. Your thoughts are the cars going by. And then picture a dog chasing the cars. With practice, the dog should be able to sit on the side of the road and not chase the cars. The cars are the thoughts, by the way. The thoughts should be able to just go right in front of your head, right through your brain, and you don't have to chase every single one of those thoughts, cars, down the rabbit hole with the dog, Ben. I know that was a little confusing. The action item there is find a way that your mind can be at peace. I use the word meditation, but it doesn't have to look like the traditional meditation. The second way to stay sober through the holidays is start your day right with hydration. This is an action item that is easy to do. The very first thing I do in the morning is drink about 35 ounces of water with fresh squeezed lemon juice. It's amazing how lethargic and how bad we can feel when we're dehydrated. Sounds pretty simple, right? But let me ask you guys, how many out there drink coffee for the very first thing they drink in the day? The third way to stay sober is give yourself a hall pass. And I personally am going to give myself a hall pass at Thanksgiving dinner. I plan on eating 70% of the pumpkin pie at the dinner. Nope, not 70% of my slice, 70% of all pumpkin pie at the damn dinner. Paul, you get a hall pass this year. Pumpkin pie, ice cream, whipped cream, Paul, do it. The fourth way to stay sober through the holidays is exercise. Yep, I personally am kind of sick of hearing blogs and podcasts about how exercise helps you stay sober and makes your life just magical, but here's an action item. I'm going to drill down and make it real specific. Do eight minutes of exercise within the first hour of your day, and while I'm saying that, I just thought about this something about Mary's scene where the guy's saying like eight minutes abs versus six minutes abs, and six minute abs, you just can't even get your heart rate up in that beat. That's just a crazy idea. But studies show that people who exercise worth at least eight minutes in the first hour of the day, they sleep better at night. It doesn't have to be this long, strenuous marathon of a run. Just simply push-ups, sit-ups, stretching, something easy in the first hour of your day. The next action item I have, number five, is find a sticky note, write the word visualize on it, and stick it to your headboard where you go to bed at night. I've had this up there for about three months. It says visualize on it. This was key for me quitting chewing tobacco. I visualized myself getting a craving to turn the car into the gas station, to pick up chewing tobacco, to get beer, alcohol, whatever it was in the past. But for me at this moment, it was chewing tobacco. I visualized myself not turning and driving straight. Guess what happened after I visualized many times in my head? found myself driving straight past the gas station, not leaning into that craving. And it's been nearly three months since I've used chewing tobacco. I'm serious on this visualize thing. Visualize yourself in situations where you get offered a drink. Visualize yourself in a situation where you're going to want a drink. And watch yourself do this. You can increase your muscle memory before it even happens. Tell yourself, no, I'm not going to have that drink when that person asks. You know they're going to ask. The first thing you walk in the door is say, hey, want a beer? Can I take your coat? It's not, can I take your coat? Hey, Sam, would you like a beer? No, it's that order. Here's a beer. Let me take your coat. No, I'm good, Gary. I appreciate it. Uh, Wait, can I put my coat somewhere? 
visualize yourself saying no. There was a scary moment at my brother's bachelor party when I was saying a speech at the dinner and I quickly turn to my left. I'm standing up in front of 20 guys and a waiter comes up with a beer and just hands it to me. Bottle of beer. I had never visualized myself in that statement and I was so surprised. I didn't drink the beer, but I was completely thrown off. I was like, ah, yeah, and uh, put your hands together for Mark. And the speech kind of sucked. But visualize yourself succeeding. Step number six, say no. Here's an example. Hey, Paul, I know you don't drink. Would you mind driving me and my three friends around on New Year's Eve? Uh, Let me think about that, Tom. Fuck no. Number seven, in the holiday spirit of taking, take snow from your neighbor's driveway and put it in your yard. Well, it's giving, I believe. Again, I think I messed that up in my mind, but it's be of service. Take the snow off their driveway. Take the snow off their porch. Be of service. Help somebody else. When the going gets shitty, that's the best way to get outside your brain and feel better. The eighth way to stay sober during the holidays is grab the mic. Gary, my addiction, he's usually got the microphone, and I gotta be like, all right, Gary, simmer down, buddy. I hear you loud and clear, it's not happening. But with this step, grab the mic yourself. Talk to yourself in a cool, soothing, reassuring voice. I do this all the time, guys. In fact, I've been busted for it. I'm walking into a restaurant and people see me out the window. They're like, hey, Paul, were you, uh, did you have your hands-free headset in, Bluetooth? Because uh, we saw you were definitely talking to somebody. I'm like, nope. I'm just telling myself to don't stop believing. Huh. I like the sound of that. I'm going to make that into a song. But in reality, I grab the mic all the time. I talk to myself like I've got my own personal Tony Robbins inside the dome. The ninth way of staying sober this holiday season is find one minute habit in your life, a very small one, and change it. This could be drinking soda pop, something really, really small. This could be taking the stairs instead of the elevator. This could be taking the elevator instead of the stairs, etc., etc. The tenth way to stay sober through the holidays is somewhat of a mind shift, a shift in thinking. You want to be the turtle and not the hare. We want to play the long game of life, not the instant gratification game. 20 months ago, I found my bank account had more money in it due to me not drinking. I invested $100 a month into an account, and today I have $2,438.69 in the account. I rarely check it, but how cool is that? My plan is to be the turtle and not the hare. A lot of the decisions that I make in life, it's not for instant gratification. I'm playing the long game. The 11th way to stay sober through the holidays is through community. I'm talking about a recovery community. A community of people around yourself, whether you connect in person or online with other people that also are not drinking. Now, this one has a weight factor of about 4 billion. Of the 12 ways I mentioned of how to stay sober during the holidays, this is by far the most important one, followed by taking, 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 taking the snow from your neighbor and putting it on your lawn. Taking is the Christmas spirit. Damn it, I did again. It's giving, but you got to take the snow. It's a service. Let's just go with that. You got to be of service. Those are the two most important ones. But community is by far the most important one. You can't do this alone if you want to stay sober through the holidays. And the last way, piggybacking off the service, is to share. Yep, share your goodies, your gadgets that you get for Christmas, but more I'm talking to share how you did it. It doesn't matter if you're struggling to stay sober. There's somebody who is struggling more than you to stay sober. You're going to find somebody and share how you're doing it. I am doing it right now. I've only been sober for two years and a little bit of change. Other people have been sober much longer than I have, but sharing is caring. Wait, no, that just sounded right. Sharing is the best way to stay sober also. Okay, before we hear from our guest today, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. 
It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Sasha, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Paul? I'm great. Thanks for joining us today. Sasha, let's get right into this. When was your last drink? It was a couple days before September 2nd, 2011. I had not planned on staying sober, so I didn't take note of the date. So I think it was late August of 2011, but I, I picked September 2nd just to be safe. <laughs> sure. A couple days of buffer there. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> and before we get any further, tell listeners a little bit about yourself. Maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, do you have a family, and maybe what you like to do in terms of hobbies and things like that for fun. Sure. I'm from a suburb outside of just outside of Washington, D.C., born and raised a place called Bethesda, Maryland. And I'm 31 years old and I have my own business as a coach. And I do a lot of writing and some yoga teaching on the side. And I'm single, but I come from a big family. I'm one of six children. And so I have a bunch of nieces and nephews and a lot of activity to keep me busy. And for fun, I would say I'm, I, I kind of I'm low key. So I like to I'm a homebody and I like to um, go out every now and then. But my idea of fun, honestly, is just having no plans on a Friday night and frolicking around my house in my pajamas and being a mega introvert. Yeah, there was once a time when my definition of fun was drinking so much that I throw up all over everything around me. But yeah, that actually sounds a hell of a lot more attractive than the previous statement. Now, before we started the interview, we were chatting and your strongest addictions were to alcohol, uppers, food, cigarettes, love relationships, people pleasing, and that damn perfectionism. Let's drill into your story a little bit. Talk to me about before September 2nd, just your safety date there, you know, late August. What happened before that? Was that your first time you tried to quit alcohol? Did you try to quit all those and just like a a neat little package and, and just get rid of it? Tell me more about that. Well, before that, I did not try to quit everything together to just answer that real quick. So summer of 2011 or September, I was just coming off another long summer of hard partying. And I had tried to quit when I was 20 years old. And then it didn't stick, really. I I just, I wasn't hearing the call. I wasn't answering the call. I wasn't hearing the message. My my family staged an intervention. I just wasn't there. So six years later, like I said, I, I was coming off another long summer of partying. And I was entering my last year of undergrad. So I was late. I was 26 and I was finishing undergrad. And I sat in my therapist's office. And after talking about another summer of a drunkalogue, basically, and sitting there in her office with my head down in complete shame and loathing of myself and my actions, 
most of which I couldn't accurately recall because I binge drank to blackout. She handed me an AA pamphlet and I started going to one meeting a week at first and it was a speaker meeting so I wouldn't have to talk and I and I just did that. I was back in school and one thing led to another and I racked up more months but when I set out I was not trying to I wasn't trying to quit. I really was just following the signs and I quit cigarettes four months later. So December of 2011. And that was a really big addiction because I was a daily smoker, at least a pack a day. Wow. So those two things together, that was like maybe the the most uncomfortable year of my life. (laughs) So you got rid of the alcohol and the nicotine within the five month period. I know a lot of listeners out there also have struggled with the same. I gave up chewing tobacco roughly about three months ago and that was brutal. And I don't know which one was worse. They They both were pretty uncomfortable to go through. And with the summer of 2011, the crazy party summer, we talking like a couple sea breezes a night by the lake or what were your drinking habits like? I was an all or nothing binge drinker. So if I went out, I probably partied like one night on, one night off, one night on, one night off. So half the week I was blackout drunk and I worked in a restaurant. So it facilitated my habit pretty well, working late nights and having free shift drinks. And so when I went out, I drank as much as I possibly could. So I'd start with a few beers while I was pre-gaming and then I got to the bar, the party, and I had shots, double shots, wine, beer. I got myself into cocaine for a little bit. So that's what it would be. I mean, I have to say like my tolerance was low. Like I couldn't drink. As soon as I drank like past two or three drinks, it was like a switch there was just no going back. And then I just drank, like, some people would ask me, like, did I did I have a death wish? Because there was no off button. Like, I just, it was zero to 60 in like five seconds. And that, that was how it went. Yeah. Now, I'm sure the one night on, one night off, the night off, your addiction would convince yourself. You're like, hey, Sasha, we just did one night of sobriety. Our body, mind, our spiritual fitness has completely recovered. Now tonight, we can go big. Did that convince yourself that you maybe didn't have a drinking problem? Oh, yeah, exactly, Paul. I didn't think that I had a problem because I I never grew to be a daily drinker. And what I knew of alcoholism, my construct of it was that it was you drank every day. You were completely physically dependent on it. You live under a bridge. Yeah. Well, not... Well, yes, to the extreme homeless under a bridge, but not even that. I knew alcoholics, and I didn't look like those people that drank every day. So I just, it didn't fit what I what I knew to be true. When I realized that I had a problem, my, my, my definition of problem drinking expanded. When I actually admitted it, I was like, wait, this is a problem too, and I can't control it, and it's a different kind of alcoholism than we see portrayed anywhere, but it's still just as much of a problem. So in that summer, did you try to quit your first time? Was that the end of August and it was boom, you did it? Or were there times in the past where you tried to monitor? You're like, you know what? I'm only going to drink a couple times this week, or I'm going to take a week off. And were any of those successful? I did try to monitor in the past and 
I could go lengths of time without drinking and like we do kind of transfer to other things, but it was always the always the problem was that when I did drink, I was out of control. I I could never regulate, I could never be a moderate drinker like 9 times out of 10 if I had a sip of alcohol, it was off to the races. So those times that I might have tried to regulate, it didn't work. I would just give up and kind of lose control and and know that I was losing control, but I knew I, I couldn't do it. So if I was like, if I wanted to be in control, I just wouldn't drink that night. And it's confusing even when I look back on it sometimes because I really went a long time without realizing that I had a problem because I I would say I was going on a detox and and not drink for like three months. And it wasn't a huge deal because I would use other things to escape myself. And as long as I didn't have to try to moderate, it didn't seem to be an issue. So it really put off me getting help about it for a long time because I didn't realize that I was never going to be able to control it. I thought that like, oh, a bunch of time has passed. I should be good to go now. Like, I, I've, I'm more mature. I should be able to, you know, control my drinking or thoughts like that that really kept me from realizing how powerless I truly was over over alcohol and drugs. Sure. And listeners, you hear me say often nearly every podcast is focused on the similarities and not the differences. And Sasha, you and I have a lot of similarities where I also found that it was easier to not drink at all than to do the whole moderation game because that for me never worked. You said nine out of 10 times is off the races. For me, it seemed like it was 99 out of 100 times. Just if I started, it was game on. All wheels came off. Didn't matter what I was doing the next day, I drank. And I found that it was easier to simply say no than it was to moderate. So then I simply said no for two and a half years, entering my dry drunk phase. Yeah, and during that phase, I didn't have a problem with alcohol, if you ask me. I'd be like, eh, no, no, I wouldn't label me as an alcoholic or whatnot. I just don't drink. And for about a decade, I had a difficult time teasing out what was really the issue. And I just read, you know, we, we talked about your alcohol, uppers, food, cigarettes, love relationships, people pleasing, and perfectionism. You know, for myself, it took me a while to say, look, anxiety, yeah, that's an issue, but what's the underlying cause? And all the problems in my life, alcohol was it. Now, did you have a similar struggle finally realizing that, okay, it's alcohol, you know, cocaine is not good, nicotine, that's not helping anything either, but the large underlying factor here is alcohol. I agree with everything you just said, and there are so many similarities, and I, I did. I, I realized that alcohol... And my relationship to it was never going to be different and that it was a problem in and of itself that I had to address. Of course, there are other things, but alcohol specifically has always been like from day one, I wasn't able to drink safely ever. There was never a time when I could. So would you say that you never had a normal drinking phase? For example, I was a normal drinker in high school and it was right around like my junior year of college that things slowly started to change. Of course, they changed faster than I could realize it, but I had like five or six years of a baseline as a normal drinker. And so I kind of know what both sides of the spectrum were like, but I've also talked with people that first drink, they're an alcoholic. They could really never control their drinking. And I was able to do it for, for five, six, seven years. And I continuously chased methods and strategies you know, and even even a time machine. I watch Back to the Future. I'm like, how the hell can I build this thing? It's not possible. I've tried many times. 
but yeah, were you an alcoholic from the very first drink? I mean, I would say by all standards, yes. I, I lost control from the first time I started drinking and it was never normal. There was always some kind of chaos that ensued and I acted in ways I didn't want to act. And there was almost like my friends had started to call me um, by a different name. Every time I drank, I was this other person, so to speak, quote unquote. That might be your 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 addiction personified, just walking around. Yeah. What what, what was this the pseudonym? It was Zoe, and it would be like, oh, is Zoe here yet? Zoe's coming out. The person that I was sober and the person that I was drunk were so starkly contrasted that it got me a lot of attention, and some of the attention was good, and so. I liked that and it fed me in ways that I felt like I was hungry for. And so it was a big payoff. I liked what it brought me because I was so shy, sober and drunk. I was just completely outgoing and gregarious and outrageous. And so I really relied on it as a crutch to to just socialize, to just be out in the world and feel like I was a part of instead of so separate. Now, I see that you tried to self-treat anxiety and depression with food, you know, after these binge drinking episodes. And what did that feel like? What, what, what did the, the anxiety feel like in, in the depression? You know, it was most likely it sounds like it was onset by alcohol. And how did you try to self-treat that with food? It, when, when it was caused by my drinking escapades or, or my nights out, it's so much shame. Like the shame spiral would, would come the next day over the things that I said and did that I couldn't remember and people would have to inform me of all the ways that I acted or I would get little flashbacks and just not want to show my face in public. And so food was there for me to ease some of that panic that I felt, you know, instead of drinking the next, you know, the next morning when I felt all that, that kind of shame hangover, I would eat and smoke cigarettes and just kind of like bask in my self-loathing and that would give rise to the depression and kind of it would cycle back and forth in between feeling extremely anxious to extremely depressed to sometimes suicidal of just why was I acting like that and why it was so different from who I wanted to be but yet I didn't feel like I knew how to stop it. So I just felt like I was in this place of being like a prisoner, you know, anyone who's addicted can relate to that feeling imprisoned. Um, and it's not a good feeling. And I didn't know how to get out. So it would just cause me to feel so depressed. And I eat, I eat some of that with eating until my next <laughs> drunk episode. <laughs> Sure. And I agree with that 100%. I don't think any addict out there or alcoholic would say, hey, Nelly Furtado, I'm free like a bird is my favorite song because I didn't relate to that at all. Because addiction, alcoholism is isolating. It weighs thousands of pounds on your shoulder. Yeah. And free was probably one of the last emotions that I felt. And so how did you do it at the end of August 2011, September 2nd? They gave you an AA pamphlet. You read it and that was it. You're good, right? (laughs) I'm just kidding. How did you do it? Yeah, that was the beginning. But there was so much I I was going to learn that I had no idea I was going to learn. And that pamphlet that my therapist handed me, you know, she didn't tell me to go to AA. She just handed me this pamphlet gently. And I sort of went, 
there wasn't a lot of resistance. There wasn't someone telling me what I had to do. I just kind of like dropped in and wanted to see what it was about and listen. What did you hear when you said when you dropped in and you listened? What did you hear? I, I heard stories of human pain and suffering and joy. Really, I felt like those meetings were like humanities classes. I really liked them. I really liked going and just listening to people's stories about their lives and how honest people were. And it was the only place that it was like people really told the truth of how they were feeling. And it was very attracted to that part of the program. Um, and I think that the meeting that I went to for the first 10 months was just once a week. It was a speaker meeting on my school campus. And I got to hear someone, you know, tell their story from start to finish. And it was just so healing. It healed me in ways that I uh, didn't know that needed healing. People just being honest about their lives. And that's what kept me kind of going back. I mean, I didn't like going. Let's just be honest. I didn't like going. I didn't know who was going to try to talk to me. I was like so socially anxious and socially awkward. And they would do something after the meeting, go out to ice cream or go out to, you know, hang out. And I'd be like, I don't want to go. I, I just want to go to the meeting and be alone. But in retrospect, you know, alcoholism and any other addiction is so isolating and it takes a while to realize that the the antidote for it is connection. So I was still fighting being connected, feeling connected to people and letting them see me for a long time. And once I did kind of open up, open up my heart and be vulnerable, that's when things really started to change for me. And it, it was a couple years into my recovery that I finally let my wall down. Now, it sounds like in your first year in AA, I didn't hear the word sponsor. It sounds like you just went to a meeting a week and opened up your ears and you listened. It also sounds like you're focusing on similarities. You related to what people were saying. Now, did you get a sponsor or was simply just being in the rooms and listening enough for you to stay sober for that first year? I didn't get a sponsor until 10 months in. That's not necessarily what I would recommend, but that's how I did it. And... It was enough maybe to keep me sober. Like perhaps my progress would have been a little bit quicker. You mentioned the word dry drunk a little bit back, and that's sort of how I felt. I mean, I was still engaged in a lot of negative thought patterns and a lot of fear, but I was sober from alcohol. So once I got my sponsor 10 months in, I had moved, I had graduated moved back to DC and I got hooked up with a sponsor and she's still my sponsor. She was amazing. I couldn't have been graced with somebody that was a better fit for me and what I, and what I needed. Nice. And Sasha, walk us through a, a typical day in your recovery. What does it consist of? So on my best recovery day, the principles of recovery are kind of woven throughout my entire day and my day flows with little to no push or force, but just allowing things to be as they are, being present and accepting surrender. Surrender is a daily practice for me. So I wake up with a simple prayer of thanks and gratitude and prayer is kind of my spiritual bookend as I like to call them. It's how I start and end my day. And then I have daily readers in the morning that I read 
an app and a book that set the tone for my day and kind of reinforce the positive headspace. And I go to a 12-step meeting, not every day, but I make several a week and meditate for 10 minutes. I sometimes, that's different every day. It's sometimes in the morning, sometimes usually in the middle of the day. And I also do yoga, which I consider my physical, mental, spiritual practice. It's it's so critical to my recovery, my, this recovery journey. Yoga has been incredible to just reconnect me to my body and how I'm feeling and how I'm feeling in my body. It's just a really important element to the rest of the practices that we do. Absolutely. And it sounds like you've got a full recovery portfolio. And I really like what you said about how recovery is woven in throughout your day. I have this thing called attention deficit disorder, not a mild case of it. And a lot of people throw that around loosely. I've been diagnosed several times by medical professionals. And for me, I have to have it woven in. And I wonder at the end of the day, I probably spend one to two hours a day on recovery, but none of it feels like chunks of time. It's just like five minutes here, 10 minutes there another five minutes and then maybe 20 minutes here and then maybe a meeting. And it's, it's really cool. I like what you said there. And I'm reading something off your website that I like, and I'd like you to expand on it a little more. It's on your about page. It says, I no longer wish to deprive stuff, punish or bully myself. My new daringly imperfect lens is one of grace, humor, and forgiveness. I love that. It sounds like you're trying to address the self-loathing in recovery. Tell me more about that. So I think that my recovery journey, at least, has been about undoing all the things that I felt shameful about. And and one of the things that kept me, you know, in this self-destructive cycle was how much shame and self-loathing I felt. It was palpable. And so every day that I am in this thing we call recovery. I am kind of recovering my sense of self, my ability to like love myself and forgive myself. So like I said, the, the whole learning aspect of what this has been like, I didn't realize how hard I was on myself or how, you know, merciless I was. And so I don't feel the need to abuse myself like I once did. And I did that with drinking, with with food, with everything. And so day by day, and as I learned to like accept my flaws and see myself really as like, see myself through the eyes of God. And, you know, inside is there's this like inner child that is always pure and innocent. And that's who I was when I was little. And she's still inside there. And I think that's how everybody is. And So having that attitude of just forgiveness, really, forgiveness has changed my life. And even in the first couple of years, every time I would like go to a meeting and I would fret over what people thought of me and what what I sounded like and what I said and kind of replay it in my head over and over and over, I should have done that, I should have done this. I don't do that as much anymore. Some days I do. There are moments where that creeps back in, that perfectionism of I need to do better and beating yourself up. But I don't live there in that space of hating myself anymore. And I'm able to laugh and I'm able to kind of just have perspective, the gift of perspective and faith, faith that like everything is how it's supposed to be. And I am exactly how I'm supposed to be. And that 
everything I went through in the past and present is part of my tapestry. I don't regret one second of it. And I have compassion for the girl who acted out the way that she did, you know, when she was drinking and needing attention and all that. I just have compassion. That's it. A lot of people's work has informed that viewpoint for me, like Brene Brown's work on shame and vulnerability and Mm -hmm. some other people. Yeah. A friend of mine named Jody, who just reached a year of sobriety, congratulations to her. She swears by a book called The Untethered Soul. It's similar to the writings of Renee Brown, but uh, I'm waiting for that one to be delivered. I just picked that one up the other day, so I recommend that. And Mm -hmm. I'm I'm right there with you. I've made a lot of progress in these last three, four months with just throwing the self-loathing out the window. I did a podcast episode about lowering the bar for myself and just accepting who I am, Um, you know, and gosh darn it, you're good enough, Paul. You're strong enough, Paul, and, and, and people like me. I should turn that into like a skit or a comedy skit and put it on late night TV or something. But (laughs) yeah, you see the reference there. But it's amazing when you just look at yourself with a more constructive lens instead of beat yourself down because alcohol did a pretty good job of that itself. Yeah, it feels good. And before we get to the rapid fire round, uh, Sasha, tell me a little bit more about your business. So you are a recovery coach out of DC and tell me more about that. Yeah, so I I mainly coach people one-on-one on recovery, but I work with some people that are not necessarily in recovery, just needing some lifestyle changes. And so my whole premise is that they're already whole and they just need some help remembering. So there's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing that they need to fix. And so that's that's how I'm approaching them and I meet them where they are and work with them using some different techniques, EFT for one, emotional freedom technique, and some other things to help them basically return to joy in their lives and to kind of come home to themselves. Because because addiction or any kind of self-sabotaging habit, like perfectionism, like people-pleasing, like disordered eating. It's it's a disconnection from who you truly are. So the the goal is to steer people back to who they are and have them really appreciate themselves and their strengths and just it it helps everything. It helps them feel more confident, more at peace. They can access joy on a daily basis. So that's what I do mainly. Yes, and then I'm launching a group a group coaching program in January and I write blog posts and for some publications to just solidify some of these things in writing. I love to write and I teach yoga for recovery. It's called Y12SR. It blends basically the wisdom of the 12 steps with the wisdom of our bodies and yoga and just merges it into one sure one healing experience. Now, Sasha, do you do coaching in person or can it be virtual? It's virtual. It's Skype and, and or phone. And actually all my clients are remote, at least right now. Gotcha. And how would people locate you? My website, www.sashaptazi.com. That's P as in Patricia. I have a work with me page on there and I do free sample sessions about 20 to 30 minutes. We just hop on the phone and I get an idea of what's going on 
and then we also see if we're a fit and kind of go from there. Gotcha. In Recovery Elevator, I want to be transparent. There is no affiliate program set up with Sasha. I have not worked with her in this regard, but if you do like what she says, feel free to reach out to her. The recovery coaching thing is legit. It's, uh, it's powerful and it helps a lot of people. And Recovery Elevator, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, Sasha, that'd be great. Are you ready? Yes. We've all heard of the aha moment. Do you have an oh shit moment indicating you might not be able to control the alcohol? I didn't have one singular moment. I think it was an accumulation of all the moments where drinking compromised my values and morals. And I, I knew that I couldn't control my alcohol intake from early on, which is why I simply would choose not to drink at all if I wanted to be in control that night. And it really wasn't. It was chronic stress from acting so poorly and just coming, reaching that conclusion. I didn't have some big, dramatic rock bottom Gotcha. And then what is your plan in sobriety moving forward, Sasha? To sit with myself. Drinking is self-abandonment. And sobriety is all about staying with myself and creating a home within. And I'm still building my home. And Sasha, what is your favorite resource in recovery? I love, love, love the Hazelden app. There's a wide variety and for various addictions, but I'm really into The Language of Letting Go by Melody Beattie. And Journey to the Heart, also by Melody Beattie. So I recommend them to people every chance I get. And I read them every day. And yoga is also, as I said, a huge resource for me, as well as 12-step meetings, including Al-Anon. Perfect. And two questions wrapped up in one. What's the best advice you've ever received? And then what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking? When in doubt, sober is always a better choice. <laughs> Even if you're not an alcoholic, I, I think sobriety never hurt anyone. And on the surface, it's all about getting sober or quitting drinking. But underneath the level of symptom is are these beliefs we have about ourselves that are causing us to self-destruct. And getting sober is about dismantling all those false beliefs so that you can grow into your highest self and be who you were always meant to be. And alcohol abuse is just one of the many barriers to your true self. And so when you stop abusing it, you get to meet yourself and know a piece that you never knew. And you really don't know until you get there. Yeah. In 2014, when I quit, I could look at myself in the mirror again. And that guy, Pablo, Paul, he's a pretty cool dude. I know what you mean there. And last, before we depart, give listeners your own customized You Might Be an Alcoholic If line. You might be an alcoholic if you spend inordinate amounts of time trying to convince yourself that you're not an alcoholic. <laughs> yep. One day on, one painful night off. One day on, <laughs> one long, miserable night off. I love it. Uh, everybody, that's Sasha Tozy. Website again is S-A-S-H-A. P is in Paul. Tozy, T-O-Z-Z-I dot com. Sasha, thanks for joining us. Paul, thank you so, so much. It's been really fun. Summer camp, recovery elevator summer camp, it's going to happen. I checked out a facility the other day, got it narrowed down to two or three, probably mid-August to early September next year, two nights to three nights, it's going to happen. This is going to be a non-12-step based recovery retreat open to the recovery elevator audience. If you're listening and you would like to go, that's for you. 
The retreat is going to be located right outside of Bozeman, Montana. This is a beautiful, pristine part of the United States of America. There's a lot of rivers that run through it. God, that'd be a good movie title. I think I'm going to make a movie. More information to come, but if you would like to get on the early bird list for registrations, send us an email to info at recoveryelevator.com. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.